0: This is the Overt Action Podcast, and I'm Kevin Strauss. This is going to be part two of our discussion on the 2015 USA Freedom Act. In the last episode, we talked about what the Freedom Act actually did, and I realize that many of you probably had some familiarity with with the Freedom Act, but it's hard to have a discussion uh, about the secondary implications of something like this, if you haven 't at least set the table about what the what the bill actually did, but for this podcast, I think it 's going to be a little bit more interesting we 're going to talk about the, the the politics behind the passage of the bill, uh, which is important because I think you know as I described the last time. The bill's pretty incomprehensible to read as a standalone document. Well, in fact, you can't because it amends the Patriot Act, which amends the 1978 FISA Act. So at the very least, people ought to understand what the interests were behind these bills. And in my perspective, at least, I think we ought to view this as a net good, not because it wasn't messy. Uh, In fact, NSA's authorities expired in I thought that was pretty unnecessary, but if you compare it to some of the other things that have been going on in our Congress, uh, I think that this is an example of of government actually, for the most part, working. So that's going to be the topic of our discussion today, part two of the USA Freedom Act on the Overt Action Podcast. There comes a time, there comes a time in the history of nations when fear and complacency Allow power to accumulate and liberty and privacy to suffer. That time is now, and I will not let the Patriot Act, the most unpatriotic of acts, go unchallenged. At the very least, we should debate. We should debate whether or not we are going to relinquish our rights or whether or not we are going to have a full and able debate over whether or not we can live within the Constitution or whether or not we have to go around the Constitution. That was Senator Rand Paul speaking on May 20th, 2015. And he goes on like that for about another 10 and a half hours. And as you could probably tell from the gist of what he was saying, he was not a big fan of the Patriot Act or the USA Freedom Act. And he was filibustering discussion on reauthorization of the Patriot Act. At least that's what he said he was doing. Uh, at the time, I think there was about three days left before Congress was due to go on their summer break, or at least a break uh, for a few days until June 1st. And and he was opposed to efforts uh, notably led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to pass a clean Patriot Act. So in other words, to approve the NSA's collection of Americans' metadata. So he went on a a ten-and-a-half-hour filibuster, which was apparently to call for a discussion of the Patriot Act. Obviously, he was opposed to it, but he wanted further discussion. Uh, Now, I acknowledge that there's a certain irony that someone would spend ten-and-a-half hours saying, we need to discuss this more, thereby, of course, precluding any opportunity to have any sort of discussion. But— he, this was an ability for him, or at least an opportunity for him, to draw attention to the USA uh, Freedom Act, to the Patriot Act, and to the general discussion of privacy and uh, national security. To fast forward to the end of the show, since or not the end of the show, but to fast forward to the end of how the bill actually worked out, since we all know that the USA Freedom Act passed, he was ultimately unsuccessful in stopping the passage of the Freedom Act, which he opposed as well, and really all he was able to accomplish was to let the Patriot, Patriot Act expire for a few days. So there's a couple ways to, to look at this. The first, the cynical way, is, number one, in part, this was all a big stunt. Senator Paul is running to be a U.S. president. And the entire time he was filibustering, uh, as well as a week later when he managed to get the Patriot Act to expire, he spent the entire time fundraising off of his grandstanding. Again, that's the cynical way of looking at it. But as anyone who's involved in politics will tell you, and and I was just a, myself, I was just a candidate, but one of the things I learned quickly is if you want to be an effective politician, you need to master the art of taking advantage of opportunities. So Paul was basically just doing what any other person in his position would likely do, at least the ones who actually expect to win. Uh, The second part of the more cynical view is his actions have real costs, just quite frankly. Uh, I worked in the Central Intelligence Agency for a number of years, and one of the reasons I decided to run for office is I got really fed up with Congress's tendency, especially in the last five to six years, to govern by crisis. And what I mean by that is we would run up to deadlines, whether it's to repay our U.S. debt, uh, to pass, to fund our government, and When Congress does that, it actually has, people don't realize this, but if you actually think through the logistics and the consequences of doing that, it's not just a matter of hitting a button and the government shuts down. Managers have to plan, you have to have, there's meetings, so many meetings that go on about what are we going to do in the event that the government shuts down. Now, what Paul did obviously is not anywhere near the extent of shutting down the entire government uh, for failure to come to agreement on how to fund it. Nonetheless, there's no question in my mind, at least, that in shutting down or at least causing the temporary expiration of the NSA program, that there are real costs associated with it. The people who were involved in in the program, I am certain, I don't know this, they didn't tell me, but just knowing how bureaucracies work, going all the way to the top of the organization, had to take steps in the event that something expired. And not having the opportunity to plan for what it would look like, what the program or the non-program would look like after the law was passed prevents them from taking steps early on and and operating in a more efficient way. So it's very easy to look at this, throw up your hands and say, well, this is just another example of our inept Congress. And I'm certainly sympathetic to some of that. I I think the shutdown, or at least the expiration expiration of the Patriot Act program was a little unnecessary. Uh, especially because it seemed to be a foregone conclusion that the USA Freedom Act would pass, but you can make the the argument on the free speech side that there is some value to it. So that's that is at least from my perspective the 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 cynical view of things. But with that in mind, I'm going to take a slightly different tact because it's always easy to be the critic, and I think for the majority of today. I want to talk about both the debate that went on, but I also want to suggest to you listeners that this is really what we should expect from our government, and it's a good thing because fundamentally the Freedom Act was a compromise, and it was a compromise that was much freer from the special interest that you hear about all the time than a lot of other bills and discussions that are going on in our Congress right now. I also think the bill was, or at least adequately captured, the somewhat ambivalent feelings of the majority of Americans. Now, part of that ambivalence is a result of a disinterest, but also part of it is Americans just, they find themselves somewhere in the middle. But let me talk about the special interest piece first. Compare it right now to a bill that was passed yesterday as of me speaking, which was the authority to for the president to negotiate on behalf of the United States in, this, in trade discussions, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which for shorthand for this negotiation, I'm just going to refer to as passing TPP. I know that may be a bit of an oversimplification, but basically understand what I'm saying. It, it, the president needed the authority to negotiate a trade deal. That, the TPP debate, as well as the same uh, sort of trade deal that we're trying to negotiate with Europe, that is very much a reflection of the state of our politics, where you have big-moneyed special interests lining up against one another. And when your representative, whether it's your congressman, your senator, whomever, is deciding how to vote, I will guarantee you they are listening as much to the moneyed interests as they are to the voters. And in the TPP, you had labor, especially big labor, lined up against business, especially big business. Labor is opposed to granting the president that authority because they generally oppose trade. And business was very much in support of giving the president the authority because they're very much in support of trade. This is important because, as, as I referenced at the beginning of this, when when you think about a bill and its implications and how it's going to be implemented in the U.S., you always want to understand who were the people pushing for it, not, not the representatives who voted on it, but who were the interests that were actually pushing for these bills to pass. It was very obvious with the TPP discussions but much less so obvious when we start talking about the Freedom Act. It seemed pretty evident to me that there were not really any major special interests, if again, if I can use that term, that were lining up on either side. That's not to say that there weren't interested parties. There were plenty. But they weren't pumping in the kinds of money that you'd normally expect to see over an issue that's so controversial. Again, I'm just going to use the TPP as, as my uh, straw man here. The money wasn't involved. So you basically had two groups of people who lined up against one another. You had the Hawks, and we'll, have their, we'll just name their leader as Mitch McConnell because, again, recall that he wanted a clean authorization of the Patriot Act, which means they would have enshrined into law uh, permitting the NSA to continue collecting the metadata of as many Americans as they could get their hands on. And then you had the, the folks who were advocating for privacy. And that was a very interesting coalition. So we, we cited Rand Paul uh, traditionally, at least in my lifetime, for the last 36 years. We have generally associated Republicans with security hawks. But that's changed a bit. You, you now have folks like Rand Paul. You have uh, Amash Congressman Amash from Michigan, who much earlier, a couple of years ago, after uh, Snowden had, re- had revealed America's secrets, had pushed for an amendment that would defund parts of the NSA to stop uh, its collection activities. You had folks like them lining up with traditionally left-wing, very progressive Democratic groups, so like the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Also, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who advocates for privacy on the internet. And those groups, uh, as well as those politicians, were pushing very hard for there to be far more uh, privacy protections in the Freedom Act, or to scrap the Freedom Act altogether and go for something much more aggressively supportive of privacy. But one of these things that that both of these groups lacked was anyone bringing in the big bucks to try and influence votes. So to the extent you can expect your members of Congress and your president to have a discussion about what is right for the country as opposed to what is right for donors and special interest groups, this was the discussion that could be had. And I think most Americans ought to consider that when they think about the implications of this bill. There really wasn't a small group of people who stood to benefit uh, from the passage of this bill. On both sides, they appear to be arguing about what was in the interest of the majority of Americans. Do we need these these bills to keep us safe, or should we be prioritizing our privacy? And this wasn't easy stuff, because as I've mentioned, if you look at the data, and if you even just go out in the street and have some conversations with folks, there's a lot of ambivalence about both these programs and where the line actually is between privacy and security. And I, you know, I know there are some out there who say it's a false, uh, false opposition to say privacy and security, but I sort of do think that there's a pendulum that swings back and forth. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the third part of this when we talk about the implications of the bill. But just if you if you don't agree with me there, that's fine. I, I think we can still agree on you know, some of the parts of what I'm about to say. Uh, several weeks ago, there was a really amusing but also insightful John Oliver episode where he ends up going to Russia to talk to Edward Snowden. But before that, he interviews a bunch of American citizens, a bunch of people on the street, asking them about Edward Snowden and a couple other questions about the NSA program. And the people he spoke to, at least, had forgotten who Snowden was and had no idea uh, what the NSA had been doing, nor did they seem particularly concerned about it, until Oliver pointed out that theoretically the NSA could be monitoring uh, their uh, text messages if they were sending... Nude photos of themselves. I won't do because this is a family rated program. I won't say exactly the words he used. But bottom line was when Oliver made the point the NSA could track them if they were sending nude photos of themselves to their friends, people seemed to get a little upset. But that's about what it took. But I think the bottom line of what Oliver was showing is that people have kind of forgotten, especially the average citizen has kind of forgotten uh, what Snowden did and what its impact was. The polling data that's out there. So if you're more a fan of of having some actual hard data, as opposed to just going on your gut or your anecdotes, uh, like a good analyst, it sort of supports what what Oliver showed. Though uh, there's a Gallup poll published uh, in early June on June 10th, and the bottom line suggests that most Americans prioritize civil liberties over. Uh, counterterrorism or their na- or national security. The headline uh, by Gallup is quote Americans stay, civil liberties should still trump anti-terrorism. End quote. The Gallup poll also notes as one of its sort of key findings that quote sixty five percent say anti-terror efforts should not violate liberties. End quote. So okay, that seems like a pretty strong message that Americans don't like their government violating their civil liberties. The challenge you get into here, though, is when you dig into the data just a little bit more, you also learn that you run into some difficulty when you actually try to define what a violation of civil liberties is and how it applies to the discussion, because Gallup also notes that 55% of Americans don't think what the U.S. was doing was a violation of their civil liberties. Now, I suspect part of this, and I almost hate to say it because it's going to sound like I'm ending here, on a, again, on a cynical note. Part of the reason Americans have this ambivalence is because the truth is you don't feel this every day of your life. If NSA was collecting my metadata for the last number of years, I have no idea. Personally, it doesn't bother me uh, setting aside the principle it doesn't bother, it doesn't affect me every day. So why would I get upset about it? I, you know, I'm sure, like most people, I think, well, I'm not a terrorist, and, and you know, if you have nothing to hide, then why should you worry about it? Again, setting aside the principle. So if there's no direct costs to me associated with it, it's hard to get emotional and upset and angry about it, unless you really believe in, in these sort of principles to the extent that you are willing to yell and scream and fight for them. And uh, certainly not denigrating someone who does believe in the might. That's certainly a vital part of the U.S. and our system and protecting uh, our country, our government, and our people in the future. But it, what NSA was doing just didn't affect us day to day. Nonetheless, and, you know, it's obvious I'm a little bit conflicted uh, on some of this, on the political impact, in, in part because it's hard to measure. I do think the USA Freedom Act and how the politics... Uh, sort of changed how the politics have changed uh, does suggest just a broader shift in in what the u s is doing and you know again, for much of my lifetime, when you're thinking about security, especially national security, the folks who were able to position themselves as the hawks as tough on defense always seem to have the advantage in in the conversation nuance was almost a death sentence to a political career. Maybe an obvious one was uh, the bush kerry race of 2004 when they were arguing over the Iraq War. The Bush campaign was very effective in portraying Kerry as being weak on defense, and maybe that wasn't the only reason he lost, but that was sure one of the key messages, and, and he didn't seem to win that discussion. But it's hard to say this time, even if the groups like the ACLU didn't get everything they wanted in the USA Freedom Act, it's hard not to say that this wasn't a victory, at least in part, for those who advocate for privacy. This really was the most significant piece of privacy legislation to pass in decades. And you really had bipartisan coalitions, You know, as I pointed out earlier, on both sides, arguing arguing for both sides of this case. One of the things that will be interesting to watch as we move forward, especially moving into 2017, uh, when other parts of the Patriot Act, most notably uh, NSA's spying via the Internet that Edward Snowden also exposed, uh, when those authorities expire, is going to be how the sides continue to line up, um, particularly as you have new elections and you have new people coming into congress and and the presidency uh, who may not have been in office when nine eleven happened because your your quick overview of the politicians who tended not exclusively but who tended to oppose uh, the Freedom Act or at least push for more privacy protections tended in a number of cases at least in the high profile cases to be those who weren 't in office during nine eleven it doesn't i 'm not suggesting by the way that they uh, that they felt 9-11 any less than the folks who were in office. But they didn't push for those security measures right after 9-11 and have now gotten in office in part because they've said, not the only part, but in part because they've said that they were going to push for more privacy and smaller government. So you may see a generational divide. And by generation, I don't just mean age. I actually just mean by, by folks who are around Uh, in the early part of this decade, and the folks who've come in in the latter part of the last decade. But I do think it's safe to say that at a minimum, uh, the national security hawks are going to have a lot more work cut out for them than they had in the past, because there is a rising opposition uh, amongst those in power to just giving the intelligence community community unfettered access uh, to Americans' data. So that's going to conclude our part two of the USA Freedom Act. We're going to have one more section here, and we're going to make the very bold and very dangerous step of making some predictions about the future, uh, which if you've listened to my earlier podcast, you know how fraught with peril that is. Uh, But I want to talk a little bit about what the impact of the USA Freedom Act will have both on the United States writ large, but also specifically on the intelligence community. Thanks again for listening. If you want more information on the USA Freedom Act, please go to www.overtaction.org.